All right, we are in James 2. If you want to turn there, we will finish James 2 today because we've jumped around a little bit covering some different passages. So we're in James 2, 1 through 13. I did a little research and I discovered that in the last 18 months, 15 sports cards have sold for more than a million dollars with four selling for more than $4 million a piece. Now, surely some of this is just investment going on. I mean, one of these like $4 million cards was bought for $800,000 just a couple years ago. So there's apparently huge investment opportunities here. So surely some, not all of this is like just passionate sports cards fans, but some of it is. Some people are very passionate about rare sports cards enough to spend millions of dollars on them. What do we do with this money? We could give it to those in need. We could you know, have some investment opportunities. We could add it to our savings. Nope, we'll buy a two and a half by three and a half piece of cardboard to put on a shelf. Apologies if that's your thing. But I think for most of us, this is a completely foreign value system that even if we had the money, we couldn't imagine that we would spend it on um, a sports card, millions and millions of dollars. There are, I mean, and you could go down the line of examples, there are completely different value systems in the world. What do we, what do we put a high price on? And we find something similar when we look at God's word, that there are completely different value systems between our world and between God, between how we tend to see things and how God sees things. Throughout history and across the globe, in, in whatever society or culture or um, political system you're a part of, there is a chasm, there always has been a chasm between God's priorities and values and our priorities and values. And so where the world says and where our hearts say, this is something of utmost value, God says, it's not really worth anything. Or where the world says, that is a useless pursuit. Being that kind of person has no value. God says that such a pursuit is, is worth more than all the treasure in the world. And losing everything that you have. In the world, we tend to, in our sinful hearts, tend to give value and see ourselves and others through the lens of, of the money we make, the, the places we live, the people we associate with or don't associate with, the backgrounds we come from, the significance and respect we have. And throughout his word, God is regularly flipping the tables on this, regularly flipping the tables of this, these value systems and helping us to see things through his eyes, helping us to see people through his eyes as they actually are. And you find this throughout scripture. And one of those places in, is in our passage today in James 2. Um, the big idea here is that partiality or favoritism or judging people by these worldly based status and appearances is out of place for God's people. 
that those who claim Christ are called to be and motivated to be in so many ways, impartial to these things and, and compassionate. And this has a lot of implications, of course, for us today, just as much as in James' day. So we're going to start at the beginning and work through this. James 2, verse 1, we find kind of the summary statement, a command given here, and then three reasons for this command. And we'll look at these in turn. So first four verses to start off. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So as we've noted regularly going through James, it's important to, to notice again that James is writing to Christians, to brothers and sisters who have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And what he says here is that that faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, being one of those people who belong to God, is incompatible with partiality. They ought not go together. To walk into a church, to come among God's people, to encounter one of God's people, and to, to find partiality or favoritism or this kind of judging and distinction making is inappropriate, unfitting. Now let's define what we're talking about here, define terms. What is partiality? One definition says that partiality, and, and this is the word, biblical word here, this word combines a group of terms signifying to accept or judge according to face and refers to favoritism shown on the basis of status in society. So, Christians are not to make much of one's status or significance in society. We are not to give greater preference, greater priority or value to some groups rather than others. To make these distinctions or separate the church, separate people into these categories. Now, we have to quickly point out that this doesn't, doesn't mean that there are no valid and good distinctions or value judgments to make within the church. Uh, this cannot mean that there are no distinctions to be made between what is, say, good and right and evil and wrong, uh, because in that case, there would be no basis for saying that partiality itself is wrong. But whatever judgments and distinctions and value judgments we make, let them be uh, derived from, from God's word and not from worldly systems. So let's flesh this out. What does this look like in our context, in our world? Well, in most societies, uh, riches, wealth have value, are seen to have value. Likewise, power and influence and significance and notoriety have value. Knowledge and ability have value. Physical attractiveness, however, that's defined in a particular society, has value. Certain careers and professions carry value. Certain ethnic or, or backgrounds or cultural backgrounds can carry value. Where you live can have value. Especially in our country, the ability to be self-sufficient and not need anything from anyone else 
is seen as valuable. But in God's kingdom and for God's people, none of these things, none of these factors count for anything. None of this gets you anywhere with God, gets you ahead with God, makes you more or less acceptable and favored by God. Whatever you can or cannot claim about your accomplishments in life is like giving a $5 million trading card to an infant. Doesn't really get you anywhere. Famously, Paul will say that all of his accomplishments that he had, that he counted as credit to him before coming to Christ, were as loss. He considers loss compared to the greatness of finding Christ, having gained him and all that is in him. When you, when you find the value of being reconciled and found in and brought near and held by God in Christ Jesus, your value system changes completely. Now, it's easy to think of some obvious examples of this throughout church history where the church failed to display impartiality. The perhaps most obvious one is racial segregation in the church. For many years and many decades, churches in America were segregated. There were white sections and black sections. Uh, even a hundred years after slavery was abolished, there were only around 20 white churches in the South to have any black members in them. Now, there have always been Christians uncomfortable with this and fighting against this, but the fact that it was the case for so long in our country should make us humble, and it, it should show us the, the extent to which we are capable of deceiving ourselves and being blind to this particular sin. One other obvious example, but more recent, is that there was a well-known church in New York recently that had a special roped-off section for celebrities and influencers, while everyone else had to wait hours to get inside. Apparently, it operated somewhat like a nightclub. And they had some justification and kind of explanation of why this was, but it's hard to see how this is not a blatant failure to do what James is talking about. But perhaps more challenging, and, but much more beneficial, is not just to just look out there at those obvious examples, but to consider ourselves. If God has deemed it necessary to give us such commands against not being partial, surely there's a need for them. Surely we're not all just spot clean on this matter as we tend to think we are as impartial as we, we think we are. No, the implication of God giving us such commands is that the bent of our sinful hearts tends to be towards partiality. This is where sin leads, to making these sort of distinctions and judgments and separating ourselves. And so we, we need God's commands and God's help in this. So, who are we most likely to 
How are we most likely to, to, to show partiality? Who are those most likely to be overlooked, devalued in our context, in our church? Uh, who are those perhaps that we don't tend to give as much priority uh, ministry attention to? I think it's helpful to consider the, the factor of age. Uh, churches are well known for really wanting young families to come in, and that's great. We love young families, but in the process, do we devalue middle-aged, older, single people? I think marital status is another one of them. We, do we tend to value and give priority and assume everyone is going to be married and, and devalue those who aren't? Might we discriminate by neediness? Oh, that person's going to really require a lot of me. They're going to need more grace than other people, so don't want to get caught up in that. Are they going to make me uncomfortable? Might we discriminate by whether or not somebody already affirms biblical ethics or not? We talked in our series about gender and sexuality a little while back that we should definitely not affirm anything sin sinful, but we should definitely welcome people of all stripes, of all types of sin. We don't write anyone off just because of where they come from, what their background is, what their convictions are prior to coming to Christ, or what sins they still struggle with. We, we welcome them, we love them, we listen to them, we want the gospel for them. And of course, in line with what James is saying, there is the temptation to discriminate based on social status, wealth, position, etc. I think there is the temptation for churches like us to um, cater to just kind of a certain middle class group and perhaps do things unintentionally maybe that, that tend to exclude or turn away those not in that group. And then I think we are wise to consider our own hearts in this. So maybe outwardly we don't appear to be impartial or partial, but inwardly, like what are your thoughts? What's going through your mind? What, are, what sort of energy do you give to those who are quite taxing? and require a lot of you or make you uncomfortable. When you're talking to them, are you trying to quickly get out of a conversation to move on? Do, you, do we listen well to, to everyone? Are we willing to give time to, to those who need it? I imagine you see some of this in your own heart. So, we have this command, but a command without any sort of reason or justification is not giving us enough. So James goes on and gives us three reasons for such a command. For impartiality being inappropriate for Christians. So first, first reason is that riches and worldly significance carry no value with God. Riches and worldly significance carry no value with God. Verses 5 through 7. It says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? 
But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not they the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So then and now, there is the tendency, there is the assumption that poverty and weakness is a sign that you are less favored, less blessed by God. And sometimes this is justified by making blanket statements about the poor, that you know, it's, it's merely and always just a result of their own sin. So, along with this, there tends to be the assumption that, that power and, and wealth and influence are particularly valuable to God. That as churches and, and Christians, we really need, uh, we need these kinds of people if we're going to do anything. We need money and resources. If we could just get a celebrity to say something about Jesus, imagine the good that can come for the kingdom. Well, this is not God's typical way of working, which you see over and over again. And in fact, as we see here, God often chooses the poor and insignificant and weak to be rich in a different way, to be rich in faith. To have a wealth, a, a richness, a value that is of a different kind. And God often works like this in order to show that the, the greatness and power and sufficiency is of him and not of us. That there is no greater treasure or reason to boast in the world than belonging to him. Being loved by him, being held by him. And that this is worth the loss of everything else. Not add this on to what you already have. Love God and then love money too or whatever. But no, it's actually worth, if it came down to it, to lose everything to gain Christ. And it comes down to it more often than we think. And so we as his people are to share this same perspective, to have this same value system, to not distinguish by social status, age, income, gender, ethnicity, abilities, knowledge, background, particular struggles or the like, but by one's relationship to Christ. And then for those outside of Christ, we long for them to, be, to hear the gospel and to be brought in. James then gives a second reason for the command to show no partiality. And that is this, impartiality is a clear breaking of the second commandment to love your neighbor. Starting at verse 8. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For, whenever, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So notice what James is doing here. He's taking the, the teaching of Jesus that all of the commands of God can be summed up in 
love of neighbor and love of God, all that God calls us to ultimately has its end and purpose in love of God and love of neighbor. That's the, that's the big idea. That's the, the, the point. And while it's tempting to excuse ourselves because, well, at least we're not murdering anyone, James says showing partiality is going against the same can, command. It's disregarding the same authority and the same wise counsel of God. And it's leading to disintegration in the church and in society, perhaps not on the same, to the same degree, but of the same kind. And so notice what James is doing. He's, he's exposing his audience and us as having broken the law at many points. And accountable for all of it. We are all transgressors. This is perhaps not good news. Uh, but it's what James is doing. He's exposing sin in his audience. And exposing a sin that they and we would perhaps care to not make a big deal of. It's just, just partiality. Not, not murdering anyone. It's just favoritism. I mean... Everyone does it. Well, the significance of it is seen in the final reason that James gives for this command. The third reason, we are to be impartial and merciful because God offers his impartial mercy to us because this is how God has been to us. So look at the last two verses, 12 and 13. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. These are some well-known off-sided verses in James, uh, but they're, they're ones that can be kind of hard to understand. What is... What is James saying here? What does this mean? Notice a few things. He says we are to be judged under the law of liberty. God's law and his ways are pulsing through and through with liberty. And I think the meaning there is mercy and grace and compassion and pity. Over and over again in God's law, in God's commands, and in how God treats us, you find mercy. You find compassion, you find patience, you find forgiveness. Mercy for sinners is built into God, God's ways and his disposition and his laws towards us. And it is, it is to be ours, our disposition towards others. This is apparent in the Old Testament, in the laws and sacrificial system of the Old Testament, but it becomes abundantly clear in Christ and the gospel. The, the, the cross of Christ cry, cries out that God's way is mercy, that there's no other way into fellowship with God than through his mercy. And if this is to be the case, or if this is the case, who are we to claim to have received the mercy of God, but then to refuse to offer that to others? 
And that's the point of verse 13. That's the gist of what verse 13 says. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Now, I think some of us might have a hard time, perhaps at first, fitting this, a statement like this into our theological systems. Is this like a works righteousness, that if I am merciful to others, then God has to show mercy to me? But this is a clear teaching in Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. Jesus, Jesus says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And I think the greatest help to understanding this is in the following verses, which we covered last week, uh, where James will go on to say that faith without works is dead. Right? That's what James says as we go on in, in, in chapter 2. Or, faith without works is dead. Or to put it positively, a true and genuine faith in our Lord Jesus Christ as God and Savior bears fruit of, of godly character, of good works, including welcoming others with compassion and pity and impartiality. Regardless of how needy they are, regardless of how much they offer, have to offer you, regardless of how uncomfortable they make you, regardless of how much mercy and grace is required. It, it's not that doing this merits or attracts God's mercy to us. Rather, it is that if we are truly people of a merciful God, children of God, and have been received and welcomed by his blood-bought mercy, then we will be merciful and impartial to others. God, God has not judged us based on our positions in this world, based on what we have to offer, based on our great resume. He has welcomed, if, if you have come to him in faith, he has welcomed you with open arms. Despite our lowliness, despite our rebellion and sin against him, despite our neediness. And he continues to. If this is the case, we ought to show the same to others. And so the last part there that you probably have heard many times, mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, I would argue that this does not mean in this context, that God's mercy triumphs over God's judgment. Although that is true, there is truth to that. But this certainly cannot mean that God's mercy always triumphs over God's judgment because James has just said there's actually those who don't receive God's mercy, the merciless. There's a chance of missing out on mercy. Rather, the context of Everything we've looked at here in James 2 seems to point to this not being a statement about God's mercy to us in light of judgment, but our mercy to others and the role that plays in judgment. Let me explain. Our mercy and compassion and impartiality to others reveals the true work of God in us and thus is evidence that we are his on judgment day. 
This is in line with where James goes next, that true faith bears fruit. It bears works. The, the fruit of our mercy is evidence of God's mercy and God's work in us, and thus triumphs over judgment. Not as our, what we point to, to, to save us, but as evidence that we are actually saved. One commentator says, the importance of mercy in human relationships is so essential because mercy is a direct indicator of repentance toward God. Failure to show mercy to those in need calls into question whether there has been any true act of repentance in face of God's mercy. In other words, we do not lack motivation to be merciful. In God's mercy to us, in God's regenerative work in our hearts as we come to him in faith, we have all the motivation and strength we need to be a merciful and compassionate and impartial people. Like the man in, in Jesus' parable of the unforgiving servant, we have been forgiven much and welcomed greatly with joy by God. If you are a Christian and have come to God in faith, you have found nothing but compassion and pity and full welcome. What then do others find when they come to us? Individually and as a church. Are we a welcoming church? Are we willing to receive and go out of our way to engage those who are different than us, who are new, who may get overlooked, who might make us uncomfortable, who look and think and act different than us? These are, I mean, when we're talking about kind of just our, the ways that we gather together, these are often very small things and easy things on the, the giving end, but they can be huge things on the receiving end. Whether somebody comes into a church and feels like they are recognized, acknowledged, welcomed, and loved goes a huge way to whether they really hear and can receive the gospel. If people are going to risk and commit to a specific church body, it goes a long way if they feel confident that they will be shown compassion and, and pity and, and that they will, val they will have value regardless of what they bring with them. The truth is that the world is full of partiality. And even in places where there's, and times where there's push against certain kinds of partiality and, and distinctions and discrimination, it's usually just replaced with discrimination and, impartial, and partiality of another kind. Well, we don't like those lines and distinctions, but we'll replace it with these ones. This is the natural bent of sinners. And may the church... And the church ought to be, and may we, including our church, display something radically different. For the welcoming in of people of all kinds to God, to hear the gospel, and ultimately for the glory of God. So, 
May we, may we pray along these lines and, and um, seek to display this in our own fellowship and, and in our own personal lives too. Let's pray.